and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome back to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Ryan West. It's my pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history, sharing his personal tales, his anecdotes, and this time some real history, family history, as well as the history of how a city opened up. Some great stuff this week, but without any further ado, the man of the hour, the host of the Studcast, the legendary Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how's it going today? It's going great, Brian. Doing just fantastic, my man. Uh, and uh, as eager as I can be to, to get the rolling here, man, uh, get the old horse saddled up and uh, lightning's ready to go. And and uh, I'm about ready to turn him loose. So, Well, it's going to be another packed episode. But before we get there, I want to mention real quick here at the top of the show, we'll have more information later on. But Super Studcast number 22, parts one and two are now available. Of course, part one with the assassin part two with mr olympia jerry stubbs i've heard from a lot of listeners who hear me every week on the mid-south wrestling television review podcast who have really enjoyed this super stud cast because of course the assassin was there in 82 and mr olympia is in the mix big time in 1982 with the junkyard dog and we talk a lot about that on the latest super stud cast check it out today tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99 you can get in the door we'll have more information later on here in the show but Ron where are we going this week right here on the studcast well we're going to begin today with uh, the next match I'm going to have in Memphis Uh, it's the last match we're going to discuss from September of 1975 and uh, it's with my dislocated clavicle injury that's been making my life extremely miserable during this time frame We're then going to cover the first two Knoxville Fridays in October 1975, including two spot shows on October 2nd and 4th, the cards, results, TVs, and the payoffs. We'll take a look at moving closer to a full-time territory when we begin to run Johnson City, Tennessee on regular Tuesday nights. And I'm going to provide uh, some fascinating Welch family history that revolves around the Tri-Cities, including Johnson City. I will reveal the identities of the interns on this show and talk about a critical spot show relationship being set up to begin running in November of 1975. Uh, This is a good one, Brian. Uh, Got a lot of stuff in this one. So uh, 
If you don't mind, my man, I'm just going to jump into her, okay? Just be careful. I know you have a sore collarbone. Don't jump too hard. Yeah, yeah. Boy, <laughs> that thing has finally gotten well or kind of getting gotten well. But uh, so as we talked about in the previous stud cast, I returned to the ring four times for Jerry Jarrett with my collarbone injury beginning just the first week after I, I went to the hospital to find out exactly what was wrong with me. I had committed to work six shows for Jerry in June of 1975, long before the injury occurred. And I'd done four of those six matches in the first two weeks of September. And I'm now going back to Memphis for match number five on September 29th, 1975. Luckily, this was another tag match with my brother. Uh, and we're wrestling against the Golden Hawks. My, go my collarbone injury was still very painful, obviously, and but I was beginning to be able to sleep a little better at least. I'd been almost two weeks since I'd wrestled with the injury. The last time I'd wrestled with the injury was two weeks preceding this date, and I think that was a very good way to put it, wrestle with injury. And gosh, my the pain was just excruciating. It didn't seem like it was much different. In fact, uh, it seemed like it was no better than it was 22 days earlier when I'd wrestled in Louisville, Kentucky for the first time with it. Uh, I was not only wrestling against opponents, but wrestling with pain. Uh, Robert carried much of the Memphis match, including giving me a hot tag for the finish. I couldn't do too much, but managed to use the old giant Baba finish again with the boot to both the boys' faces as they came charging off the ropes. Rob pinned one, and I covered the other for a double pin, and it was a real delight to the big old Memphis crowd, man. They were still doing big business there. I spent another sleepless night afterward in the Memphis Hotel, due to the pain that I had come back big time after that match. I mean, every time I worked after a match, that uh, seemed like I just injured it again. I hobbled through both the Memphis and the Knoxville airports the next morning on my way back home. And uh, I'm going to have to be back in the ring again one week later in Memphis again to do it all over again. So uh, I'm still having that collarbone problem, and it's it's really affecting me big time. Uh, let's open the Friday Knoxville card of October 3rd. Let's start with that. Uh, i give you the card here. Dennis Call Hall returned to face the Avenger number two, and he won that match. Louis Dupree defeated the Avenger one. I had returned the Les Thatcher and Norvell Austin 20-minute time limit draw from the Friday before because I watched it and it was such a great match. This time, the time limit's going to be expanded to 30 minutes and again ended in a draw. So this is two draws in a row between Thatcher and Austin. Got a little something going. Think I'm going to do it again. This one was even better than the first draw match. I did not want to hear, I didn't want to beat Les because I needed him to be strong because I wanted him to, you know, be respected as carrying the, the commentator job properly. And I had big plans for Norvell. Didn't want to beat Norvell either. This type of match didn't hurt either of them because it was so darn good. Fans all stood for the last five minutes. In fact, I don't think anybody in the house was sitting down for the last five minutes. The Mid-American Tag Champions, the interns with manager Dr. Ken Ramey, lost a non-title match against Tommy Siegler and the new star, Charlie Cook, that had just arrived. They set up the championship match, obviously, for the following week. By winning that match, they're obviously going to get a title match the next week. The main event on October 3rd was the Tennessee Tag Championship, 
with champions Robert Fuller and Ron Wright versus the former champions, the Assassin and Rock Hunter. Assassin and Hunter regained their titles that night, re-recorded both those matches, those tag matches, to be shown the following day on the Southeastern TV. I had booked two spot shows also that weekend, Middlesbrough, Kentucky on Thursday, October 2nd, and Morristown on Saturday, October 4th, as we had done on several occasions. Both had the same card of the Assassin and Rock Hunter versus Ron Wright and Siegler. That was won by Wright and Siegler. Norvell Austin versus Don Wright, won by Norvell Austin. Charlie Cook versus Louis Dupree, with Charlie Cook the winner. And the first match was Tony Peters against DeVoy Brunson, with which DeVoy Brunson won. How did the weekend go, Ron? Well, Middlesbrough, Kentucky had its best crowd yet. Uh, just over 1,000 fans packed into the National Guard Army there. Morristown, Tennessee was similar with just over 1,000 people as well. The gross houses were about 3,000 with a total payoff of about 900. The bottom boys in both these towns, uh, you know, same card. So the bottom boys, DeVoy Brunson and Tony Peters and the ref got 60 bucks. Charlie Cook, Norvell Austin, and Don Wright got 90 each. And the main eventers, Assassin, Rock Hunter, Siegler, and Ron Wright, all got 110 each. Knoxville drew about 3,000 people on that night and uh, the Friday night in between these two spot shows with a gross gate of about 9,000 and a total payoff of about 2,500. The bottom boys, Dennis Hall, Louis Dupree, both the Avengers and the referee got 90 each. The next tier, Norvell, Les, the interns, Ramey, Siegler, Charlie Cook got 170 each. And the main eventers, the assassin and hunter, Robert and Ron Wright, got $210 each. The top guys worked all three shows. If they had worked all those the three shows, got $430 each for the weekend. Not bad for a three-day weekend in the fall of the year. Uh, I was pretty happy with it. And I think they were too, probably. And how many miles would that be? I mean, it's $430 for the weekend, but how much driving? Oh, gosh. Uh, Middlesbrough, Kentucky was 60 miles, and Marstown, Tennessee was 40. <laughs> so they drove 100 miles for two shows, and they were right there in Knoxville on Friday night. So, I mean, it, it was kind of the beginning of how sweet that territory was going to be when it came to trips. And uh, guys really, really <laughs> loved it. You know, they were all uh, commenting uh on Friday about the, you know, we had that long trip last night, Ron, to Middlesbrough. Can you keep us a little closer to Knoxville? You know, it's kind of like a joke, but uh, uh, I could see that, uh, you know, it was going to be a big benefit to me that towns were going to be so close to get to. So let's look at the TV on Saturday, October 4th, the day after this match that we talked about that publicized the Knoxville card in Chilhowee Park again for the following Friday night, October 10th. The TV opened with the Mid-American Tag Champions. Before we get to that match, I want to thank one of my great fans on social media for reminding me who these very capable interns were. The originals were Jim Starr and Bill Garrett. And when Garrett left that team, Tom Anderson took his place. So Starr, Garrett, and Ramey, uh, they're all on this card. They're very upset with their loss the night before against Tommy Siegler and Charlie Cook. Uh, when they showed up, and they showed it with their victory over Dennis Hall and Rocky Smith, the former Infernos. They had two very good opponents, and the champions looked great as they took apart Hall and Smith. When Dr. Ken Ramey and his interns arrived at the set following the match, 
The team each had a belt over their shoulders, both those guys on the team. But Ramey made a point by snatching the belts from their shoulders and displayed the mid-American tag belts, put them on the front of the desk. And he said something to, something to the uh, fact that uh, you don't deserve these, you know. <laughs> so, uh, And then he, he, he tore into his team, uh, which you didn't see that very much on television. He said that this was the his team's first outright loss in more than two years to any opponent. He chastised them for being lazy and overconfident because their match the night before was not a championship match. He warned his team that the next Friday night would be for the belts. He guaranteed that they would be ready the next Friday. Uh, Les said something to Ramey to the effect of uh, uh, the team better be ready because Siegler and Cook looked very good for a first-time ever tag together they had never had a tag match together and they went out there and beat those guys so Ramey finished that first segment of the show by uh getting the belts off the front of the desk and putting them back on the shoulders of his team and then turning back the lesson guaranteeing again one more time that we're not going to lose next Friday night so first interview got the crowd into it as Tommy Siegler and Charlie Cook came to the set for for their interview Charlie Cook had made a very good impression on me, but more importantly, he's making a very good impression on fans. Both he and Sigler were very humble, thanking Southeastern Wrestling for the opportunity to wrestle for the Mid-America Tag Championship. Les announced that they would be returning to the set later in the show to watch the very impressive win from the night before over the Mid-American Champs. Kept that audience waiting to see these matches that were recorded from live house shows. The crowd gave them a rousing applause, well, obviously, when they left the set. They were into it. Second match of the TV was a chance for me to take care of a very good worker and friend of mine from Australia, Bill Dundee. Bill had worked for me a great deal in the summer of 75, and I wanted to highlight him on TV to make him a little stronger and to show my appreciation. Uh, and I like to do that sometimes with guys that... Uh, that I I'd, I'd I wasn't able to take care of like I wanted to, but I wanted to know them to know how much I appreciated their work. Uh, he worked with a guy named Jerry Myatt, got a very good win. He took the second interview spot and got some great heat, knocking the hillbillies in the studio audience, as well as the ones at home watching. He compared them, I, I hate to say this almost, but he, he compared them to the aborigines in Australia. Called them ignorant and dangerous. That's what you hillbillies are. He then spoke of his opponent the following Friday, Dennis Hall. He brought up Les and his long relationship between him and Hall and how they were very similar and how they'd been tag partners for years. He made several insulting comparisons between Thatcher and Hall, ending the interview by saying to Les something like, Dennis Hall is just a mediocre wrestler, but still a lot better than you, Les Thatcher. Les's face got red as Dundee walked away, and uh, you know I could see I could see it didn't it didn't sit too well with Les, and and uh, sometimes I I got a big kick out when Les would get angry, and that was one of the times that he certainly got angry. Where did you go next on the show? Is it about time for personality profile? Speaking of Les, that's it. Personality profile opens up in the next segment with the new Tennessee tag champions, Assassin and Rock Hunter. They brought out their new belts, laid them in their laps, and they sat down in those big old chairs that we had for profile. 
and the profile began. Les started off by congratulating them for their win over Robert and Ron Wright the night before, and it was their second reign now as Tennessee Tag Champions. They ignored his compliment, and they asked Les when he was going to show the video schedule for the profile. Les continued to make some small talk. He was trying to get more out of them, which they seemed to want no part of, and they asked again pretty quickly to Les about when we're going to show the video. Les finally asked the director to run the video of their win over the former champions, Ron Wright and Robert, from the night before. When it began, the video was not that match, but it began with them attacking me and the video from a month earlier in which they attacked me and the night I was hurt. Uh, Les got very upset immediately, asked the director to play the proper video, please. But uh, both the assassin and the hunters started screaming to the booth upstairs to leave the video on. They wanted they wanted to watch it, and uh, and they wanted to since they, there was their personality profile. They felt like you know we we're you you this is our profile, isn't it, Thatcher? This is what we want to watch. So Les brought up the fact that they had done this a couple of weeks earlier. And he tried to take over his show, and they just continued with comments and questions about how they'd promised to hurt me, and where was I now, they kept asking. Where's Ron Fuller? Les tried one last time to have the video stopped, and they both stood up from their chairs and screamed again to the director to keep that video running. Les finally got up himself, removed his portable microphone, clipped to his suit lapel, and he left the set. Oh, and they loved it. I mean, then they really, they didn't have less there to mess with them, and they just took over for sure. And they just continued to focus on their big night when they put the Tennessee stud away forever and even showed the ambulance arriving and leaving again the baseball stadium after my injury. A normal five-minute segment expanded to almost 10 minutes, and the heat they got was amazing. It was one of the few times ever that left Les had left the set for personality profile. It may have been the only time, but I, I don't remember of another one for sure. But I know that when he left this time, it opened the door for them to take over, and they did take over. So third match was now really a guy that's really getting over, Norvell Austin against DeVoy Brunson. Austin made short work of his opponent, and he won again with his very impressive finish, a headbutt to the face of DeVoy Brunson as they both came flying off the ropes and collided mid-ring. Uh, that instant replay, every time they ever showed one of those replays of that, it was such a snug and tight move. It just it looked unbelievable. It looked like he just took his head off. Austin took the third interview segment and was joined at the main set by Phil Rainey. Les was on set number three with a split screen again, as we had done the week before. I love this interview setup, and I think the fans at home did also. It was so completely different from any wrestling show in the world at that time. They both talked about the 20-minute time limit match the night before and the special 30-minute time limit for the next Friday night's match between the two of them. The back and forth between the two of them and the fact you could see the reactions of both on the screen while it was occurring it, to me, just created an entirely new look for a wrestling show. It was something no one was doing, and it just it just fit perfectly with that type of deal where you had Les and an opponent and him not being able to interview his opponent. Last match, 
featured another tag match with Ron Wright and Robert versus Louis Dupree and Tony Peters. Fans in the studio, and I'm sure those at home, were ready for a couple of baby faces. The first three TV matches had been all heels, and so was the personality profile. Fans in the studio went crazy as Phil Rainey finished announcing the heel team and Robert and Ron Wright appeared in the studio. They made quick work of the heel team and joined Les at the main set. They began by apologizing to Les for what had happened to him on the personality profile, and Ron Wright called uh, both the assassin and Hunter jackasses, and, and uh, the crowd obviously loved that. Uh, the studio audience loved uh, loved Ron Wright's descriptive choice of words uh, to describe the new champions. Les asked Robert about my status with the collarbone injury. Robert politely answered, saying only that I was recovering and that he wouldn't want to be those two when I did come back. Then they asked Les to please show the video that he wanted to show earlier uh, on the personality profile. And this was the video from the night before that showed their controversial loss of the Tennessee Tag Championship. Uh, and it clearly showed Robert and the Assassin were the legal guys in the ring uh, before they fought outside to the floor of the amphitheater. Ron Wright and Rock Hunter stole the referee's attention when they started fighting in the ring, and Rob and uh, the Assassin are out fighting on the floor. And uh, Rob starts back into the ring, and Assassin somehow gets his hands on a chair. I think it was the uh, announcer's chair that's sitting close to the ring. And he nailed Rob from behind with that chair. The referee didn't see it because he's watching and trying to stop Rock Hunter and Ron Wright, who are illegally in the ring, from fighting. He's trying to get control of the match is what's happened. Uh, so then he rolls back into the ring. He takes Rob, who's on the floor, rolls him back in the ring, and he gets in and covers him. And the referee turns around and counts him out. They're the legal guys. He he did his job as it was supposed to be done. Uh, both Robert and Wright promised to get the titles back the following Friday night, which was again in Chilhowee's Park Amphitheater. If it didn't rain or wasn't too cold, bear in mind we're in October now. And it's starting to get a little cool up there in the mountains of, of eastern Tennessee. Uh, so they were going to have one more chance to get their word in about the Friday's, Friday's match with the scheduled interview that was supposed to come up immediately following them watching the video. Les and I, we had agreed uh, when we changed stations that we weren't going to allow them to do wrestlers to do what they had been doing on Kazana's show and uh, just doing unlimited promos during the regular part of the show. Uh, I felt like the television station, that would be what they would want us to do. Uh, we had plenty of time for interviews, and so the, they, they had watched that video. Then they came back after the commercial break, and they had their two minutes to fire up the audience in the studio and at home. They left the set in the inter at the interview ended in a very happy and supportive audience. I can tell you that. Ron, I want to ask you about the Chill Howie Park show you built up with this television show. But before we get there, I'm just curious. You've talked about all the different things you've introduced onto the Southeastern television show, the different technological advances you've introduced into wrestling broadcasts around this period of time. All the positives. I'm just wondering, were there any negatives? Was there anything you weren't happy with? with these early episodes on WBIR? Was there anything that you think could have gone better? Was there something that, looking back now, if I had only known this, I would have done this differently in the first couple of years or first year of Southeastern? 
Uh, you know, oddly enough, Brian, uh, uh, neither Les or I ever felt like that we had missed the boat somewhere. Uh, I think we we pieced together such a good program. We were extremely happy with it. Uh, I know the fans were happy with it. They had to be. They were seeing the very best wrestling product in the country, in the world, actually, for that time frame. And a little old town of Knoxville, Tennessee, very strange that, that that's where it would come from. But I felt that we had put together maybe just about the perfect wrestling show that had four matches in it. It had four separate interviews in it. It had a segment in the dead middle of it that was very informative and different than any other wrestling show. We tried to maintain that as much as we could. It's hard because uh, wrestlers get carried away, and they forget that uh, I'm not supposed to be plugging this match during this this film here. you know. So you, you had a few things like that that would occasionally go wrong, but... Gosh, the television station loved the show because of the numbers, and they didn't care. I don't think we could. I think uh, we probably could have talked about anything we wanted to, make interviews during any portion of the show, all of that we could have done. But we tried to maintain the quality of the program and not get those interviews spread throughout the show. Uh, I thought we did a great job of piecing it together, and we certainly were happy with it. The fans seemed to be happy with it. The television station was ecstatic about the numbers. Was there anyone who, whether it was a match in the ring in the studio or doing a promo, was there anyone who had a difficult time hitting their times? Was there anyone who frequently ran too long or, I guess even in this case, too short on an interview? Uh, no. I mean, obviously, when we were doing interviews, you had they were timed interviews. Uh, they saw a clock. There was a clock that ran down. Uh, the uh, crew uh, that was doing the show, they had one guy specifically to handle the clock. And when the two-minute interview started, they would set that clock on two minutes and you would see it wind down. So there was no excuse for running along. Uh, and anybody that had been professional wrestler for a while and had wrestled in other territories was familiar with that scenario. Uh, Florida was a great example. They were doing those time commercials, and they did not run even a second long because that was important to the television station. They wanted that commercial to be exactly two minutes, and they wanted their commercial, their the their commercials exactly two minutes. They wanted our interview segment to be exactly two minutes. Uh, they And that had to happen in order for you to end your show on time and get everything in that you were supposed to. So uh, it, uh, it was a great product that we were doing, and we really did a pretty darn decent job of organizing it. And we didn't tinker with it much. I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that show wasn't broke. A lot of companies now have their referees wear earpieces so that they can be talked to during a match and they can make sure the referee knows the time. Do you think if you were promoting nowadays or if this technology was available in 1975, was that something you would have adopted, the idea of having communication with the referee from the back? Well, I think it's good, but I think fans would have had to question what's he got that earpiece in there for and who's talking to him and that type of stuff. We did it, the same thing. But we did it in a different way. I would always have somebody there that would go out 
uh, and that whoever's in the ring knew who the Q guy was. And uh, just uh, whoever I picked, and I told them what was going to happen, and here's your Q guy. And that guy would go out and just come around the side of the the uh, where the dressing rooms were and into the area where the studio was. And as soon as they saw him in the studio, that was their signal to go home. And so we had it. Yeah, we weren't talking to anybody on an earpiece, but we had it. We had it set up to where everybody knew who their cue guy was, and one, immediately upon spotting him, they went home, and it worked great. Well, Ron, let's talk about the show that you built up with this television show, October tenth, Chilhowie Park. How did it do? Were you outside or were you inside for that night? Well, we were outside. It was a beautiful night, but it's as I said, it's getting colder. We're up there in the mountains, uh, you know, and it's 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 starting to get down to where we're not going to be able to stay outside very much longer. Uh, it was almost the same crowd as the Friday before, around three thousand fans. We were outside that Friday too. Uh, it was a gross of about nine thousand total payroll, about twenty four twenty five hundred. Uh, Bottom Boys, Dupree, Myatt, Dundee, Hall, and the ref got 90. Austin Thatcher, interns, Ramey, Cook, Siegler got 170. And the main eventers uh, got that same $210, basically close to the same figure as they had the week before. Well, Ron, before we continue any further, let's take a break here real quick and hear a word about the latest Super Stud Cast, Super Stud Cast number 22, parts one and two, The Assassin and Mr. Olympia. Masked wrestlers are full of mystery at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three-hour Super Studcast number 22 removes the hoods from two of the best wrestlers of all time, Jody Hamilton, the assassin, and Jerry Stubbs, Mr. Olympia. Rod brings things to life that other interviewers can't because of his personal relationship with the stars. Both of these wrestlers work for him in two territories and tell remarkable stories in Super Studcast. Studcast number 22 at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. And now, just in time for Christmas, the fantastic Lost Territory DVD 5-pack is finally being released again. So many thousands of fans have asked when and where to get the historic 12-plus hours of the original Southeastern and Continental videos. Order between now and the 15th of December, and you'll get them before Christmas. Don't miss this opportunity at tnstud.com. Only $39.99. Click on Stud Store and secure your piece of wrestling history. There you hear it, the latest installment in the popular Super Studcast series available for patrons of the Studcast at TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast. The Assassin, the Evil Assassin, and Mr. Olympia, a man who was both evil and a popular fan favorite at various points in his career. Get behind the mask. Here are the details behind these extraordinary wrestling talents today. TNstud.com or Patreon.com slash studcast. We'll have more information at the end of the program. But Ron, where are we going to now? We're up to date with what's happening in Knoxville. Where are we going to next on the Super Studcast? Well, we're going to change gears here. We're going to we're going to start setting up the second regular city in southeastern wrestling that's going to be having matches on a regular night. Uh, this city 
was one of three cities that were in a triangular configuration about 30 miles apart in the northeastern part of Tennessee. The three cities were Kingsport, Bristol, and Johnson City, Tennessee. We're going to focus on this area called the Tri-Cities. Before we talk about what I'm going to accomplish there, I want to first talk about what my family had already accomplished in that area long before I was even born. My grandfather, Roy, Roy Welch, his brother Herb, Jack and Lester all had history there along with my father. It was one of the first areas Roy focused on when building his immense Tennessee territory. And I mean immense when I say that. Roy originally set up his Tennessee company on the western side of Tennessee, about 40 miles from the Mississippi River in a city called Dyersburg. The Tri-Cities were almost 400 miles to the east of Dyersburg, where Roy resided at the time, and where my brother and I were born, that same city, Dyersburg, Tennessee. Roy didn't just look toward the east in creating his massive territory. He established a professional wrestling uh, in 10 states from the early 1930s into the 1960s and ran his company with a truly iron fist. From West Virginia south to the Gulf of Mexico and from eastern Tennessee west to Texas and Oklahoma, when it came to wrestling, Roy was the king. There was no way he could have built this huge territory without help, and much of that help came from family members. He taught them first how to wrestle, and then he trained them in the art of promotion. He then placed them strategically in cities and states across the South. He moved family members with experience to new cities and states when it became necessary and replaced them with younger family members to run the established areas that these other family members had got going. And so, you know, it was a tremendous business plan. Uh, as one member got the experience of running these towns, uh, he moved on. Uh, to uh, maybe a place that was brand new that Roy wanted to develop. And then he replaced those guys with other family members who had yet to learn the ropes. But uh, they were going to be stepping into a company and a part of the country and an area in which there's already been running and it's already a smooth operation. Johnson City, Kingsport, and Bristol were one of those areas he controlled. When he didn't have enough family members to fill the holes, he trained non-family members to do the job. Uh, speaking of ruling with an iron fist, there's a great story that has to do with one of these non-family members placed in the Tri-City areas by Roy in the late 1940s. His name was Mickey Barnes. Roy had to depend on honest people, especially since wrestling fans always paid with cash especially back in those days. There was no way he could be in every one of the six or seven cities in the South that would be running on the same night. So he taught family members how to count houses. Uh, they were his eyes in cities where he couldn't be. He trusted no one and encouraged family members to count those houses where they were wrestling and call the next day to report the estimate they thought the crowd was directly to him. <laughs> Pretty good plan. Uh, I mean, Roy really had his stuff together. He was amazing. Roy's brother Herb was very good at estimating crowds. And in one instance I want to talk about, he called Roy in the early 1950s about the guy named Mickey Barnes who was operating the Tri-Cities of Northeast Tennessee for Roy at the time. And uh, 
what happened is, uh, you know, the, he had been there. Herb had been working that town uh, of Johnson City for many, many weeks, and he saw the houses, his payoff not being as big as it should be. And he had talked to Roy about the money, but Roy had so much going on that I, I think Herb had to really impress him with the fact that you, you need to check this guy. You need to come here and see what's going on because something's not right. So Roy drives from Dyersburg to Johnson City, Tennessee. How far uh, is that, Ron, for the listeners? That's about, about 400 miles, and, and that's two-lane road back in those days. And uh, once he gets there, he doesn't let anybody know he's there. He parks his Cadillac, his big old Cadillac, way out the way from the front door, but where he can see the entrance to the building. And he takes one of those little clickers and he clicks the house so that he knows exactly how many people and how many tickets were sold. So at the End of uh, the ticket sales, and about uh, an hour after the matches have begun, he goes in to the box office, and uh, he asks Mickey Barnes to show him the report for the night. And you know, and then Mickey's probably had enough time to put the report together and to figure out the tickets that were sold, and 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 to uh, stick his fingers in the pot. <laughs> before you know before the money's going to be taken back by somebody to uh, the far side of Tennessee and uh, so Roy looks at the figures uh, and he sees that uh, there's at least 150 people more in the building than what the report shows so he's he's extremely upset and he you know Roy's a Roy's a killer at this point and and mickey barnes is a small scrawny guy that you know roy can't beat the hell out of him you know so but he wants to make an example out of him so so he goes out and he says you come with me and he takes him around to his cadillac out there in front and they drive around the building to the far side to where the boys are uh, and it's the the boys can see out of their dressing rooms right down on this Cadillac, and Roy knows it. In fact, when he gets there, he blows the horn, boop boop, you know. It's kind of like watch this guys. <laughs> so, so and Herb, Herb, Herb knows he's there, but Herb doesn't tell anybody. But when Herb hears the car down there, and he, he gets up there and he looks in the window, and then he says, "Hey guys, you're gonna check this out." So. All the guys, whoever's not in the ring, they all get on the, there's a little footstool, a big bench there, and they stand on the bench so they can see out of this overhead window. So Roy gets Mickey Barnes out of his car, and he brings him around to the front of his Cadillac. And and he talks aloud so that the wrestlers can hear what he's talking about, and he's saying, you thief, you know, you've been stealing my money, and you're not only stealing my money, you're stealing the boys' money. And uh, that's even worse. And he goes, I could, you know what I could do to you. And then Mickey Barnes is actually starting to cry, sniveling and crying, you know, oh, oh God, Roy, no, no. So he takes him by the reaches and grabs him by the chest and raises him up in the air. And he slams him down with his ass on the hood of his Cadillac, of Roy's Cadillac. And he, so Roy says, uh, 
you know what I could do to you? And, you know, the, and Herb loved to tell this story. He says, you know what I could do to you and how bad I could mess you up? He goes, but you're so scrawny and so little and weaselly. <laughs> he goes, and he gives him the old thumb in the throat that he, he created his territory with and the way he took over in Tennessee. He shoved his thumb into his throat and he started thumping him. He started thumping his eyes, you know, and, and just above his eye and the side of his eye. And he and every time he would thump, Mickey would scream. Ah, 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 and he would thump. He started thumping one eye until it got black. It started swelling and it got black. And then he just switched over to the other eye and he thumped the other eye until both his eyes were black. <laughs> so Herb used to tell that story, and gosh, I guess that was one of the tales that went around the Tennessee Territory for a long, long time. Obviously, that was the end of Mickey Barnes uh, for many, many years. I think Mickey Barnes actually worked his way back in, but I'm sure he was a lot more honest when he did. But uh, I thought, you know, when I listened to that story as a kid, I was impressed with how Roy did not just beat him up and do something horrible to him. He embarrassed him and he made him walk around with black eyes for a couple of weeks, but uh, he did not do anything physically destructive to his body. And he certainly could have. So uh, after he fires Mickey Barnes, Roy sent my father 1951, the age of 24 to take Barnes place and run the tri cities and other cities around it. I was three years old at that point. My father had just began to wrestle, and he was very limited with experience as far as the promoting part of it. But he was family, and, and he was not inclined to help himself to some of the money coming in as Mickey had been, done, been doing. You know, he definitely wasn't going to stick his fingers in the till. So, uh, you know, he was a good guy for Roy to choose to send there. Plus, the territory there was up and running. It wasn't quite a territory, but uh, but it's going to be. Ron, throughout the years, so many people have guessed about what the house really was. We're promoters reporting one thing. We think it's something else. We think someone's cheating us. In this case, obviously, it's actually the real promoter who's having those concerns. How come more people didn't click the attendance? How come so many people are doing an estimate by eye? They're trying to guess how many people were there. How come more people didn't just sit there and click and know exactly how many people were there? I think there were wrestlers were wrestlers and, and the, even promoters were trusting souls. You know, uh, you, you trusted the guys to kayfabe. You know, you trusted a lot of different people. You couldn't sell the tickets. You know, you own the company and you're one of the wrestlers. You couldn't be in the box office and people buying a ticket from you and see you in the ring 30 minutes later. You know, it was it, you were in a position where you you had to trust people. And uh, and most of them did. And I think most of the people were honest. Uh, this was kind of an unusual situation. Uh, and the reason I tell the story is because of the way Roy handled it, uh, more so than the situation itself. But yeah, I mean, you could click houses. Uh, that that's a very easy and a good way to check up on people. Uh, I started doing it in 1979 uh, when I had the problem in Knoxville, and uh, Root brought it to my attention that there may be a problem. Uh, I started having people check those houses for me, and uh, I never found that these ticket sellers were stealing money. But, uh, you know, it's 
I guess uh, you could have done it on a regular basis. Probably been would have been worthwhile to have someone traveling every night and clicking every house, uh, especially if you were going to have some thieves. But guys got to be so good at looking at houses and really pretty close to estimating the number of people. They didn't think they didn't think in terms of dollars, uh, gross. They thought in terms of numbers how many hundreds or how many thousands of people could be there. Pretty hard to do and be correct. But uh, guys thought they were good at it, and some guys were extremely good at it. So your father is only 24 years old when Roy sends him to the Tri-Cities to promote? I mean, I knew Buddy had been promoting since he was young. I didn't realize it was that young. That's it. 24 years old. Uh, just started wrestling. And had, uh, he had run a few little towns in Arkansas and Missouri. But he had he had never been into a situation where he's going to go into a a setup uh, system there that they had in Johnson City and the Tri Cities at that point. Uh, it was a big move forward for Dad. Uh, so uh, no, it it was a it was a it was a big move for him. And uh, and before we discuss the the further success of my father in the Tri Cities, uh, let's take a quick look at what other family members had done there before we moved there uh, and after we left the Tri-Cities in 1954. Uh, uh, there was a very nice building in Johnson City called the Rec Center. It had been built in the 1940s, and Roy chose that to run his wrestling matches in early on. Just about the time they built the building, he started running wrestling there. The building was used for many things, obviously, but one of them was as a training facility for amateur wrestling and boxing because it's a rec center. My grandfather's brother, Herb, voluntarily came early on wrestling days in Johnson City, and he was there just about every week uh, to train young kids and young men who wanted to learn how to shoot. They wanted to learn how to wrestle. Uh, Herb really focused on wrestling. He wasn't big on boxing, but uh, Herb never trained him anything but shooting because that's how it was done back in those days. Oddly enough, back in those early days, he trained both Ron and Don Wright and Whitey Caldwell before they became great professional wrestlers who are going to make have a profound effect on wrestling in East Tennessee for the next 30 years. They were trained by Roy, along with Honky Tonk Man and uh, David Schultz and, uh, you know, so many, many other wrestlers later on in life. It was not uncommon for Roy and his brothers to get involved in this way. In communities all across the southern United States, they made a contribution uh, not just to the sport, but to those who loved the sport as well, they, they had big hearts and they wanted to create wrestling fans. They would do anything it took to get that done. But if Herb's not there anymore and your father's there, how does that affect the training of the wrestlers if he's the one training the wrestlers? Well, uh, when my father was sent to the Tri-Cities in 1951, he took over the training from Herb because Herb was by that time a huge star in the entire Tennessee Territory. He no longer went to Johnson City all the time. He was world junior heavyweight champion back in those days. And he was working not just Tennessee, but he was working St. Louis, and he was working a lot of other territories. So Herb's time in Johnson City was basically through. So when Dad was sent there, uh, he he started doing the same thing Herb had done. Uh, he uh, he had some local guys, you know, that 
He still wanted to learn how to wrestle, and uh, and Dad had some training in boxing as well. He he was a pretty decent fighter, so Dad had a real impact on wrestling in the Tri Cities while there, and he opened many towns for wrestling enough to create a small territory within within the huge territory Roy already had. Uh, he go to these. He would go down there because he lived in in uh, Johnson City. We actually lived in Kingsport, one of the Tri Cities. But he would go to that building every day and train train people, and uh, spend time with young people that wanted to learn how to wrestle. I wanted to learn how to box. Uh, it's just one of the things that the family did because they were so involved in that business. Uh, so there were wrestlers uh, sent there. Once he created a small territory. Uh, there were wrestlers sent there, and they lived there, working only that area for years. It was so successful as a small territory that Roy, surprised by what had happened there himself, sent my dad and family to Mobile, Alabama in 1954 to do the same thing Dad had done in the Tri-Cities. He was sent there to create a new territory along the Gulf Coast of America that would run cities every night from the Florida Panhandle into Louisiana. And when that happened, Roy sent his youngest brother, Lester Welch, to Johnson City and the Tri-Cities to replace my dad. And Lester not only continued to success there, professional wrestling, but he also took over the training of these young kids in the rec center, where my father had done it and where Herb had done it. So, I mean, you know, our family really had history in that Tri-City area, and uh, it's amazing how how much those guys were doing for others that they that they probably didn't have the time to do they were taking the time to do it at this point two generations of welches had a profound effect on the development of eastern tennessee as a huge professional wrestling market that would continue well into the 1980s the third generation robert jimmy golden jackie welch roy lee welch and myself are going to continue that legacy starting in 1974 when I go to Knoxville and buy the territory or the town. It's not a territory. It was a town from John Kazana. Well, Ron, let's now take this back to the present day here on the Studcast, or at least present day for the Studcast as we're doing it. 1975, you're now ready to go into Johnson City. You're ready to go into the Tri-Cities. How do you do it? Well, you know, we kind of bring things full circle here in 1975, the Welches do, and uh, I'm going to premiere my Southeastern Wrestling TV program on WJHL-TV, Channel 11 in Johnson City, Tennessee, on the third Saturday in July of 1975. Uh, This station's signal was boosted northward, most primarily northward, because... uh, most television stations in the country wanted to would send their signals northward uh, rather than have signals that covered other markets by going too far south. So this station signal was boosted northward via one of the first ever cable systems in the country, and it went into cities as far away as Beckley, West Virginia. Uh, I'm going to tap into that capability in 1976. Uh, in, in the next year the, of our stud cast and begin to run cities in West Virginia, like Bluefield, West Virginia. I'm going to begin to run Johnson City and the Tri-Cities regularly on Tuesday nights, the third week of August, 1975, in that same rec center where my grandfather and his brothers had wrestled on so many occasions more than 30 years earlier. I'm going to split the profit with Christine and Jerry Jarrett, who'd been operating there before I arrived in Knoxville, 
uh, via an agreement that we made between us. And uh, and uh, I'm going to split the profit with them. Uh, I'm going to actually do the work. Uh, but uh, they were there before I got there. It was a good deal for me. It gave me an opportunity to have another regular town, which I really needed to set up a, a territory. And it uh, also made me a little money. It quickly got the attention of Jim Crockett Jr. of the huge Mid-Atlantic NWA territory. He noticed my TV presence bordering on his territory and quickly got on Channel 5 TV out of Bristol, Virginia. Uh, he tried to get that station, and his father, uh, I'd tried first. You know, when I wanted to go into the Tri-Cities, that was the biggest station and the best station. I went there first uh, to try to get my program on the station in Bristol, Tennessee. But I got turned down by the GM of the station, who happened to be <laughs> Jim Crockett Jr.'s uncle. <laughs> and his name was Walter Crockett. I should have recognized when I sat down with him to talk about TV. And he never said, hey, look, uh, <laughs> Jim Crockett Sr.'s my brother was my brother. <laughs> and, uh, I can't put you on my television. <laughs> so, so everybody was very nice to me. And, you know, just said, hey, you know, I, I, I like your program. He watched the show and he was like, wow, he got a great wrestling program. But he goes, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be able to take it. So, I, you know, I didn't understand why. But as soon as I found out how stupid I was to try to make a presentation to one of the Crockett's family, uh, so I felt pretty stupid about that. So in the tribute to Jim Crockett Sr., I'd, I'd never had a problem operating with him, and nor had my family, nor had Roy or anybody in that area. So and had been and my history with Jim Crockett Jr. was a little bit different than than uh, Roy's history with Sr. Uh, Jr. and I had to talk. We had to sit down and have a conversation on several occasions about the borderlines of where we could operate. I don't think Roy and Crockett Sr. ever did that. I doubt they ever had to have that conversation. And we're going to get into that conversation about those those border limits and where we could, where I could run and where they could run uh, as time goes by and then studcast in the future. So in essence, you know, I'm now operating four shows a week on occasions when I run the three-day weekends. When I don't, I'm running at least two shows a week regularly. If I'm short of talent for Johnson City, Jerry Jarrett provides me guys out of Nashville to fill the card. As I grow larger, add more cities, and fill my territory with wrestlers, I'm not going to need anyone from anywhere to help me provide cards any place I want to run. Uh, my relationship with Jerry and Christine's pretty smooth, though, and uh, we get along very well. How much of the relationship with Jerry and Christine is strong from the beginning due to the fact that, obviously, you are Roy's grandson and Roy is the boss of the territory? Oh, I can imagine it's a has a great deal to do with it, no doubt. Uh, you know, I mean, had I, my name last name not been Welch, I don't think that they would have uh, given me the rights to to split the t that that town with them. They'd been running that town for a long time out of Nashville. It was a long distance and a long drive for guys to make. They didn't much like making it. And uh, well, that was actually my next question. Was it really worth it for Christine and Jerry Jarrett, based out of the Nashville office? Obviously, they're running towns like Louisville. Jerry's booking Memphis, so they're all the way on the other side of the state. 
Was it really worth it for them to control Johnson City at this period of time? The quick answer is no, because they didn't (laughs) do well. You know, and they didn't do well because he had enough talent to run Louisville on a Tuesday night, but he didn't have enough talent left over to send a decent card to Johnson City and the Tri-Cities. So what happens is once he puts me in there and I get my territory up and running and I I get great talent, uh, I start drawing two and three times as much as he ever drew there. So, you know, they're starting to make more money and doing nothing for it. Basically, they're not, they're not contributing in any way whatsoever. But I never let that bother me because that would have been stupid on my part. It was like a uh, piece to the puzzle that I needed to put together in order to create my own territory. And that's uh, kind of what I was able to do. It was my first stepping stone that Johnson City on Tuesday night, Knoxville on Friday night. I've got the beginnings of piecing it all together. So uh, let's talk about adding the, the extra cities that put the final stages together to have a real territory. As I said in recent studcasts, I've already started approaching high schools with my unique Southeastern wrestling program to contribute 10 to 20% of the gross gate to the school for the use of their large gyms. I had already signed up Jellicoe, La Follette, and Oneida, Tennessee high schools and was waiting until my new television station had enough exposure to ensure success before I gave them their first match. Uh, and, and the reason I did that is because it was critical to have a great crowd the first time out, or I might lose their confidence right off the bat. Uh, and, and they, they would <laughs> and the ability to, to make them money. You know, I mean, if I go in there and I bomb on the first night with them and they walk out of there with a hundred dollars, they're going to go, well, geez, why are we giving away our gym for a hundred dollars a night? I'm going to lose this relationship that I've worked hard to build. So I'm waiting. I've got these three cities already, and I'm just now waiting to make sure that television has had the time to get our, my wrestlers over, and I'm going to be able to, uh, to get it done when I do start booking s- six nights a week. Uh, so I set my sights. Uh, first on, on my first Kentucky city, Arlen, Kentucky, about a hundred miles north of Knoxville. Uh, many of these cities in southeastern part of the state of Kentucky had not been reached by television stations that had wrestling shows on them. Uh, that was the key. They had not been seeing a lot of wrestling in that southeastern part of Kentucky. Uh, and it certainly, they weren't going to see the big Jim test station that Kazana had that only went 40 miles in all directions. It's not going to reach there. So obviously things television-wise had changed significantly. Now these cities were both saturated with Southeastern wrestling from two television stations in a different part of Tennessee, WJHL out of Johnson City and the Tri-Cities area as well as that huge WBIR TV signal from the Knoxville station I was now on put us in that southeastern part of Kentucky in a form and fashion that had to make wrestling fans out of them that was going to become a huge market for me. And and I could see it happening. Now I had two stations to get it done. I'm going to eventually have Bluefield, West Virginia station that will back into those areas as well. I'm going to be really king 
in that part of Kentucky because of where my television stations are located. How did you get Harlan, Ron? Well, I go, uh, I get, I'd meet the football coach. I set up an appointment just like I did with, with uh, the other three towns I already had in Tennessee lined up. And I met with a coach of the, the, the high school football coach in Harlan, Kentucky. Name of the high school was Kaywood High School in the early October 1975 to discuss my high school program. His gym was huge and beautiful. It was in a beautiful round building that did not have a bad seat in it. And the beauty of it was there was 3,000 of those seats. Wow, it was a fabulous gym. He was a nice guy, but he was a difficult sell for that 20%. He insisted on 30%. He wanted to keep all of the money his school would receive for his football team. And he wanted to ask me if, how I felt about that. Well, I didn't have a problem with it. I just wanted to get in that fantastic gym and to help schools with things they couldn't afford and left it up to the schools how they wanted to use the revenue. I mean, that was kind of between him and the school. It wasn't my, my deal. I finally agreed to his terms and and basically, I agreed because I had no choice. I mean, he's got the gym and, and I've got the wrestling program. But uh, without uh, me saying, yeah, I'll give you 30%, he wasn't going to give me the gym. So he wouldn't budge. And I was just salivating at the thought of selling out that gym and how much those payoffs would help me to get the best talent I could get. We came to an agreement that day. And we shook hands before I left. And that was the way things were done back in those days. There was no contract. There was nothing like that. It was just a gentleman's agreement and a handshake. I wanted to go there on Saturday nights, but he wanted to see how it would do on a weeknight first. I had no control again. And we finally agreed to run the first wrestling match ever in Kaywood High School's gym on Thursday, November 6, 1975. That's coming up in the future studcast. And in the next four years, that high school alone would get more than a quarter of a million dollars in revenue complements of Southeastern wrestling from that high school program. Well, Ron, that's quite impressive, and I can't wait to hear a little bit more about this. And November of 75 is coming up shortly on the Studcast, so we'll certainly get the story about your initial event in Harlan very, very soon. But as we wrap things up, I want to remind everyone, you can follow the Tennessee Stud on Facebook, the page, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. All you have to do is like that page, and boom, automatically you are friends with a wrestling legend. Also want to remind you, the Tennessee Stud is on Twitter, at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter, at Great Brian Last. You can follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter, at Super Podcast. And we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever it is that you find your favorite podcasts. Speaking of your favorite podcasts, want to mention once again, Super Studcast number 22, now available, parts one and two for patrons of the Studcast at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Over three hours, only $2.99 gets you in the door. And of course, there are so many amazing episodes of the Super Studcast for you to check out. Deep dives on wrestling history, as well as conversations, not just with wrestling legends, but conversation between wrestling colleagues. Because it's one thing to hear an interview, and it's another thing to hear the Tennessee stud sit down and reminisce with some of his old friends in the ring. You got to check it out today, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Ron, where are we going next week on the studcast? 
Well, we're going to dive a little deeper into October 1975 when Southeastern is going to introduce El Mongo, a legend in Georgia wrestling, and he's going to be managed by Rock Hunter. Southern Tag Champions Buddy Rogers Jr. and Lenny Rogers are going to be in for a little bit, and newcomer Don Lambrick is going to be joining the territory. We're going to also look ahead at what I've planned for Knoxville's Coliseum and the TV shows coming in the critical month of November and talk about where I am physically concerning the clavicle injury. And, uh, you know, uh, just really looking forward to it. And then uh, God bless everyone out there. Uh, we really thank you for supporting us and uh, look forward to talking to people again next week. Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.